The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. We're currently in our sermon series entitled The God Who Builds, studying the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And as we've seen, Nehemiah was the governor uh, during some very difficult time uh, in the nation of Israel. But it was through these difficult times that God does an incredible building work in their lives. We're going to study the whole chapter of uh, Nehemiah 5 this morning, but we'll read the first five verses to kind of kick us off. The Bible says in Nehemiah 5, verse number 1, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. Last week we saw opposition from outside the walls. Uh, This week we're really going to see some oppression taking place inside the walls. Verse number 2, For there were there that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There was a, there was a famine. There was a, a very much a lack of food taking place, and they had to mortgage off their property just so they could buy food. Verse number four, there were also that said, we have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. This morning, I'd like to speak on the subject of the God who builds through sacrificial unity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for being a father to the fatherless, for giving us our rest. We thank you for your great name. And Lord, I know there are uh, many people this morning who are resting on your great name, and so we thank you for your power. We thank you for the strength and the grace that we can find in your presence. Lord, I also think of um, our brothers and sisters in Egypt who were uh, brutally murdered this morning. Lord, we pray for them. We lift them up. I pray that you would um, be a father to them in this moment. And Lord, I ask that we would never forget the privilege that we have to worship with you this morning. Father, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word. Uh, Give us exactly what we need for this moment. We love you. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we saw opposition coming from the enemies of Israel. Uh, Their neighboring cities and nations didn't want to see the wall of Jerusalem rebuilt. Sanballat and Tobiah, we are introduced to them, and they came, and they were mocking the Jews. They were trying to tell them that they would not succeed, and so they would mock them. And when that didn't work, they began to physically threaten them. And the nation of Israel, they didn't let that deter them, so they continued to build the wall. And now as the building work goes on, we're going to see a different type of opposition that begins to happen inside the walls of Jerusalem. And one that's arguably even more of a dangerous kind of opposition. You see, the theme for our message this morning is unity inside the walls is really what strengthens the work that takes place outside the walls. If the people inside are not unified, then they cannot do what God would call them and would have them to do outside the walls. Even Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, But this shall all men know you're my disciples. If you have love one for another. So we see that it's the unity of God's people is a big part of the foundation of the building work that he wants to do. Unity inside the walls strengthens the work for outside the walls. So let's jump right into it this morning. In the first five verses that we just read, we see the injustice of the nobles. The injustice of the nobles. Just as things were starting to settle down from the outside threats, things inside the wall were starting to heat up. There was a big problem. Uh, These weren't just a few disgruntled members who were complaining about the color of stone that was being put up. Uh, These weren't a few people who were just unhappy with where they had to work on the wall. 
I mean, these were people coming to Nehemiah saying, Nehemiah, we got stuck on the dung wall. We have to work out. No, they're, they're not complaining about that. This is, a, this is a serious and legitimate need. You see in this few, these first few verses, we see several things taking place. First of all, you have a group of people and their wives who are poor. And many theologians would believe they had no land. And they depended on their husband's work as day laborers for their daily food. They had big families, as we saw in these verses, many sons and daughters to feed. But the fact was that they were away from their jobs. Working in Jerusalem was causing some real distress, and people began to take advantage of them, as we'll see here in the next few verses. Then you have another group of people who had a mortgage off their property just in order to survive. So just like that first group, they, they were running out of money to eat, and there was this famine going on, so they literally mortgaged off their properties, they mortgaged off their vineyards, even their houses, just so they could buy corn so they could eat and live. But because they were mortgaging, mortgaging off their fields, they could no longer use their fields for money, so now they have no more source of income. So the very thing they're doing to try to help the problem is just making the problem worse. And then on top of that, they have to borrow money just to pay the king's taxes on the fields that they no longer own. It seems like the more they do, the worse it gets. This is a very real and legitimate problem. And if this is all that was happening, that would be bad, right? But look at verse number five. It gets even worse. Verse number five, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. And you can sense the despair. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. For other men have our lands and vineyards. Like we can't even buy our children back because we have no source of income. I mean, how bad is this? They can't afford to eat. They're having to sell their sons and daughters into slavery. Uh, the situation was even more critical for daughters sold into slavery because their master could pressure them into marriage, and they were also susceptible to sexual exploitation. Uh, the word bondage in the Hebrew word is sometimes used in the Old Testament with forced sexual connotations. So they were, they were scared, very legitimate fears that were taking place, and they couldn't do anything about it. They felt completely and totally helpless because they have no source of income. They have no money. They can't even buy. They can't even redeem their children back. Somebody else owns their land. It's just this downward spiral into debt and into depression and oppression. And they're really in a terrible spot. This is a huge problem. But perhaps the worst part of it all is look who it's against. Verse number one tells us there was a great cry of the people and their wives against their brethren, the Jews. You see, opposition, persecution, and oppression, these things really shouldn't have surprised the Israelites because the Bible says in Deuteronomy 28, 32 that when the Israelites didn't worship God, when they turned their back on God, that this type of stuff would happen from a foreign nation. But this wasn't from a foreign nation. This wasn't happening from the outside. This wasn't coming from the Sanballats or the Tobias. It was coming from within the household of Israel. Certain wealthy nobles and officials were oppressing and abusing and taking advantage of the impoverished Israelites. This wasn't just morally wrong, it was even sinful. The Bible says in Deuteronomy twenty three nineteen, Thou shalt not lend upon usury with interest to thy brother. Usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. These nobles, they're taking advantage and they're causing, charging crazy amounts of interest and the, the people, they can't do anything about it. Again, Leviticus 25, 35-37, If thy brother be waxen poor and fall into decay, then thou shalt relieve him. Yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee, take thou no usury of him. Don't charge him interest. Don't charge him increased. But fear thy God, that thy brother may live. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him upon thy victuals for increase. So that's very core. 
This oppression is leading to the exploitation of the weak and vulnerable by the strong. Rather than walking in generosity towards their brothers, rather than walking in unity towards their brothers, they're taking advantage of them in very, very desperate situations. So what do we do with this? What, what, I mean, this is, this is like, this is really, this is really this weighty thing. But I want you to notice how Nehemiah responds. We see Nehemiah listens to the cries of injustice around him. These people, they come to Nehemiah with this cry, and he listens. I, I think so often for us, it's easy to dismiss uh, the cries of injustice in others when it's not our personal experience, right? It's easy for us to maybe look the other way. It's easy for us to maybe ignore the situation, to pretend like it doesn't exist, but that's not what Nehemiah does. He's listening. He's understanding what's going on. I, I love the thought we need to listen to understand, not just to respond. And I'll be the first to admit, I really stink at this. If you're in my connection group, you'll know sometimes I get really excited because I feel like I have a good answer that might help somebody, and I'll like cut them off right in the middle of what they're saying because I want to say my cool thought or whatever. My wife is so gracious, she'll be like, sweetheart, you just cut them off. I'm like, oh yeah, sorry. Why, what, what am I doing? I'm listening to respond. I'm not really listening to understand. And the truth is, we can all be quick to answer and slow to understand. We're really good at listening to tell people why they're wrong, but we're not always so good at listening to understand. And here we see in Nehemiah, he's listening so that he can understand. Now again, understanding is not necessarily the same thing as agreeing, but the first step in unity is to listen, to understand what is taking place. Because unity inside the walls strengthens us for the, the work outside the walls. And if we're going to be experiencing unity, we have to listen. Listen to the cries of injustice that are going on around us. So we see the injustice of the nobles, but we also see next in verses 6 through 11, Nehemiah confronts the issue. Let's read verses 6 down through verses number 11. Verse 6 says, And I was very angry when I heard their cries in these words. Then I consulted with myself and rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said unto them, ye exact usury, they're charging interest. Exactly what the Old Testament, what Deuteronomy and Leviticus told them not to do. Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them and I said unto them, we after our ability have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell our brethren? So Nehemiah is like, we're doing everything we can to buy back the people who have been sold off to the unbelievers. And now here you guys are putting them right back into slavery. He's like, guys, what are we doing? Then they held their peace and found nothing to answer. Also, I said, this is not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn, I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, their lands and their vineyards and their olive yards and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn and of the wine and the oil that ye extract for him. So after Nehemiah, he hears the cries of injustice going on around him. He hears what's going on. He listens, he understands, and then he responds. So here we see that the injustice taking place, it stirs something up in Nehemiah. He hears what's going on. He understands what's going on. As verse number six tells us, he actually gets angry and upset at what is taking place. Nehemiah hears, he listens, he understands, and then he responds. So what's next for us if we want to grow in unity, if we want to be a people who are unified? Well, we see it. Nehemiah was moved by the sin and injustice taking place. He didn't just hear and say, okay, that's great. I'll pray for you. No, he was moved. 
He actually did something about it. Nehemiah got angry at the sin that was taking place among his brethren. Now, under the scope of unity and division, we're not talking about preferential matters, right? It can be very easy to see passages like this and then use them out of context to justify sinful anger. Well, Nehemiah got angry, so I can too, and just start blasting people. But that's, that's not what we're talking about here. The Bible does say in Ephesians 4, 26, be ye angry and sin not. This is not a blanket justification to get angry whenever we are inconvenienced. You say, how do I know the difference between righteous anger and a sinful anger? Well, here's how we can know. Are you also experiencing the fruit of the Spirit? You see, righteous anger is also compatible with the fruit of the Spirit. You'll know it's righteous because you could ask yourself, is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith? If the Spirit is, if, the, if these things aren't there, then it's probably not righteous anger. I saw this meme on Facebook uh, this week. I thought it was pretty funny. It's, hello, may I please speak to Jesus? Because these folks going to make me break at least four of the Ten Commandments. This is unrighteous anger. This is not how we are supposed to, res- to respond. You see, if the root of our anger is the fact that we are inconvenienced, then it's not righteous anger. This isn't why ne- Nehemiah isn't getting upset here because he's being inconvenienced. He's not being upset here because people aren't putting the stones up just the way he likes. He's upset because there's a serious sin issue that's taking place. You see, sinful anger is birthed from an idolatrous heart. We're not getting what we think we deserve. And what we're angry at is often a good indicator of what we're focusing on. If your anger is directed towards a person, you're probably focusing on that person and not on Jesus. But when you're focusing on Jesus and when you're walking with him, you can still be upset that sin is taking place and still have a love for that person. You can be angry at broken situations while still showing compassion towards broken people. So we see Nehemiah gets angry about the injustice that's taking place. But then notice the beginning of verse number seven. I love it. So we know Nehemiah is upset, right? This is a horrible, horrible thing that's taking place. And it, and it upsets him. He gets upset. But notice the beginning of uh, verse number 7. It says, Then I consulted with myself. That word consulted could be translated counsel. So we see Nehemiah, while he does get upset, Nehemiah did not respond emotionally. He counseled with himself. He took a minute. He caught his breath. He didn't get angry and just go postal on these guys. He didn't go into Hulk mode and start smashing everything and flipping over their chariots and going nuts. No, he listened, and then he took counsel. He let the emotions of what was happening pass so that he could respond accordingly. And I think this is a good word for us today. Nehemiah pondered. He let the emotions of what was wrong get out of his system, but first he had to take counsel. I think this is a step we often miss. How often do we just allow our emotions to fly off the handle? And I I know, I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I do go postal. Ask my two-year-old. He's seen it. But Nehemiah, he doesn't do that. What does Nehemiah do? He doesn't respond emotionally. He takes counsel. He takes a minute. He was upset, but he took counsel. And then what does he do? Well, we see that Nehemiah confronts the issue. He goes and he talks to the guys. Our third takeaway on this point, Nehemiah confronts the issue. Matthew 18, 15 says, Moreover, if thy brother, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell your entire small group. No, it says, go and tell him his fault. Between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. You see, true unity doesn't really happen when we just sweep things under the carpet. The Bible tells us if somebody sins against you, you need to go talk to him. You need to address that. You need to confront that issue. 
I can remember when Sarah and I first got married, she used to always say, sometimes I feel like I have to walk on eggshells around you. And I was like, sometimes I feel like an egg getting beat around you. That wasn't the right response. But the truth is, walking around on eggshells is not unity. It's conformity. That's fear. We're not, we're not talking about conformity. We're not talking about living in fear. Unity happens when two people willingly filled with the Spirit, work through a situation. And what does Nehemiah do? He goes and he talks to the people. He addresses the situation. He confronts the problem. Now, again, don't go running around confronting everyone over your preferences. You're like, cool, Nehemiah confronted people. I'm going to be the conf- confrontation dude. No, that's not, that's not what we're saying. This isn't about confronting people over your preferences. We have to be careful because this can so easily turn into a preference game where someone does something you don't necessarily like, so you have to go and tell them why they're wrong. Unless, like Pastor said last week, they're a Raiders fan. Then tell them, I'm just kidding. Um, Just because someone in your connection group doesn't like the cookies you made, that doesn't mean you need to go tell that person they're wrong. It probably just means you made bad cookies. So Nehemiah, he's confronting this. Why? Because it's a serious sin issue. We don't confront over preferences, even strong preferences. That's great. We have them. But because of Jesus, like we're going to see in a minute, we can have unity in the midst of huge differences. And so we don't confront over those. We confront over sin. Now, if a brother comes to you and tells you his favorite TV show is The Bachelor, you need to confront him right away. He needs to repent. I'm sort of kidding. I don't know. But no, what does Nehemiah do? He goes and he confronts the issue. Luke 17, 3 through 4, take heed to yourself. If a brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, confront it. And if he repent, forgive him. I love verse 4. And if a trespass against thee seven times in a day. So if he does the same thing over and over and over and over again, seven times, what does the Bible say? And if he turn unto thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Confront it, tell him, but forgive. And even if he does it over and over and over and over and over again, the Bible still tells us to forgive. While there is a legitimate sin issue taking place, when there is a legitimate sin issue taking place, just go and talk to that person. Don't go running around telling everyone what happened. Don't start the gossip train. Don't go to your small group and say, ah, pray for so-and-so. That's gossip. That's not what we're talking about. Go and tell him. Follow the example of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, he went and he confronted the issue. Why? Because unity inside the walls is what strengthens us for the work outside the walls. Unity inside strengthens for the work outside. If we're not unified together, our foundation for the building work that God wants to do becomes weak. Now, in our story with Nehemiah, the process of unity is taking place, but we haven't got there yet. So what happens next? Well, in verses 12 and 13, we see the nobles repent and restore. Look at verses 12 and 13. So Nehemiah confronts them, right? He does it in the right spirit. He does it in the right attitude. He goes and he confronts them. Then look at verse number 12. Then they said, those nobles that Nehemiah just confronted, they said, we will restore and we will require nothing of them. We will do as thou sayest. Then I, so basically, it worked. Nehemiah went. He confronted the sin issue, and then what happens? They repent, and they restore. They said, we're going to give everything back. Look at the rest of verse number 12. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. Also, I shook my lap. Did you ever read some of the Bible and go, what in the world? I don't know exactly what that looks like. I'm not going to demonstrate what I think it might look like because that would be weird. Anyways, he said, I shook my lap, and here, here's a point, and said, So God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. So basically, he's like, if you guys don't do this, God's going to shake you down. Even thus, he be shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did according to the promise. So what happens? It worked. The nobles, they, they repented and they restored. They listened. They heard. At first, they were silent. 
deer in the headlight, like, what? But then they listen, and they're like, you're right, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. We're going to give everything back. After all, what's the point of building this wall? What's the point of asking God to do restoration work if we're just going to tear each other up inside of it? It's like we're building our own cage. This is such a great testimony to the Lord's healing work. And I, I love verse 13. They didn't just say they were sorry. They said they'd give everything back. And then to demonstrate how serious they were, they go through this entire ceremony. They take this solemn oath to make sure that this doesn't happen again. The, they willingly put them, themselves under some accountability to say, hey, we're going to make sure that this doesn't happen again. They could have been like, hey, man, I ain't going to submit to that. I said I'm going to do it. My word should be good enough. But that wasn't their spirit. They were serious about repenting and restoring, and so they willingly said, yes, we're fine with the solemn oath. We will do this. Because why? Because we're serious about our unity. We're serious about making this thing right. Now, here's the deal. If truth be told, and if we're to be honest with ourselves, and we're, we're in church, so we can be honest. Um, technically, we're always in church because we are the church, so we should always be honest. Um, if we're to be honest, we're probably a lot more like the nobles then we are like Nehemiah. No, you're not taking such advantage of people that they have to sell their kids off into slavery. But truth be told, we probably have a lot more confessing to do than confronting. I mean, if you were to take a look back over the last couple months, maybe a couple years of your life, if I was to take a good, long, hard look at myself, I'd be like, yeah, there was more confessing that I need to do than confronting. You see, here's the truth. If and when we are confronted, what do we do? We just repent and restore. James 5, 16. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confession and repentance are vital to gospel-centered unity. They're absolutely vital. Confession and repentance may seem hard because we tend to be proud, but the gospel reminds us that none of us are better than anything else. You see, the gospel has everything to do with authentic and sacrificial unity. The gospel is the glue that holds our unity together. You see, here's a thought that I've really been kind of pondering through this week that I think really helps with this idea of confessing, repenting, and restoring. Without Christ, we are all equally condemned by God. Without Christ, before we're saved, all of us are equally condemned by God. But with Christ, we are all equally loved by God. So let's unpack that for a little bit. Without Christ, we are equally condemned by God. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like his sheep have gone astray. Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. I love Galatians 6, 3. If a man thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Paul's like, dude, you're fooling yourself if you think you're better. None of us are better than any one of us because the gospel shows us that without Christ, we're really all equally condemned by God. None of us are better than the other. Sure, we might struggle differently, But just because we have a different sin doesn't mean we're in any better shape before God. Now, even if you go back and look at verse number 10, Nehemiah, he includes himself in this rebuke. He says, let us stop doing this. So Nehemiah isn't coming at this from this proud standpoint. Nehemiah realizes, I'm before God, I'm just as guilty as anybody. And he's being humble in his approach. You see, the gospel shows us that without Christ, we're all equally condemned by God. And when we realize this, We are free to confess and repent and make things right. When I realize I'm no better than anybody else, it makes it really easy for me just to confess that, yeah, I'm falling, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. I'm not better than anybody else, so I'm now free to confess. I'm now free to repent. That kind of removes the pride from the equation, and the the gospel shows us that it frees us to confess and repent and make things right. But on the flip side, with Christ, we are all equally loved by God. 
that fact should blow us away no matter how many times we hear it. Without Christ, we are all equally loved by God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. The gospel tells us that we are all equally loved by God. God has forgiven us of worse things than anyone can ever do to us. It doesn't matter what somebody could do against me. My sin against God was far worse, and yet he loves me radically. He forgives me of everything. And because he radically loves me and radically forgives me, we are free to radically love and forgive others. We can restore. We can make things right. Why? Because I have the unending supply of God's love. If I was up here and I had an endless supply of money, you could just give it away and it wouldn't matter because it never runs out. Well, it's the same with God's love. We can never run out of God's love. We can never run out of God's forgiveness. It's always there flowing freely to, to us. And because of that, we are free to forgive others. So that person that drives you up the wall, don't point. I'm just kidding. Nobody was pointing. That person that drives you up that wall, that person has seriously hurt you. They, they, they did wrong. God loves them just as much as he loves you. God loved the nobles just as much as he loved the suffering people. And when I realized that, man, we are all equally loved by God, I'm now free to love and I'm free to forgive. Why? Because you're just as loved by God as I am. And I'm just as loved by God as you are. The gospel, make, it frees us so that we can confess, repent, and restore. The gospel is what allows unity to take place. Now, as we're going to see in our chapter, unity is not a once-and-done thing. It takes ongoing work because we live in a broken world. None of us in this room have it all together. So there's going to be times after today when I have to go and confess, and I have to repent, and I have to make things right. And we see here in verses 4 through 19 that Nehemiah sacrifices for unity. Let's read verses four, uh, 14 through 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, this is the first mention of Nehemiah being governor, from the 20th year even unto the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, that is 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken of them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yea, even the servants bear rule over the people. But so did not I, because of the fear of God, Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall, neither brought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. Moreover, there were at my table, get this, 150 of the Jews and rulers, besides those that came to us among the heathen that are about us. That seems kind of random, but we're going to uh, make a point of that here in a minute. Verse 18, now, that which was prepared for me daily was an ox and six choice sheep, also fowls were prepared for me, and one once in ten days store all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not, required not I the bread of the governor because of the bondage that was heavy upon this people. Think upon me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. So we see Nehemiah is continually sacrificing for unity to take place. Nehemiah distinguishes himself from his predecessors and that he declined to eat the bread of the governor. What is the bread of the governor? Well, the bread of the governor was just the food that was allotted to the governor that the people paid for. Part of them being taxed was to go to pay for this food. But Nehemiah, he refused it. He said, I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to charge them for my food. Why? Because they're already in dire straits. They already have a heavy burden. We're trying to rebuild the wall here. We're on a mission. He's like, I'm not going to add this to their burden. Now, such a refusal was at a great personal cost. And verse 18 just showed us all the food that Nehemiah ate every day. It wasn't just him. He had all these people that he was feeding along with them. So Nehemiah himself has all these people that are eating at his table, all these people that he's responsible for feeding, 
And yet he's saying, I'm not going to take anything else from the people. So that begs the question, who's paying for all this food? It was Nehemiah. The reason this is brought up is Nehemiah is showing us that unity takes ongoing sacrifice. Nehemiah had a lot of people to feed himself, but unlike his predecessors, he wanted to fulfill his mission from God of restoring Jerusalem without adding to their burden. He said, look, this isn't good for the people if I add this onto them as well. He's like, it might be easier for me, sure, but it's not going to be easier for them, so I'm not going to add to that. So Nehemiah is saying, I'm going to sacrifice for unity. I'm going to sacrifice because it's what's best for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Nehemiah and his servants instead devoted themselves to the task of rebuilding. It also says that they didn't buy any land. That's also significant. It was not uncommon for people in power to use their power to get good deals on land so that they can make themselves rich, but Nehemiah didn't do any of that. Why? Because Nehemiah was sacrificing for ongoing unity. He's saying, I'm going to go without because that's what's best for the people. So we see that ongoing unity takes ongoing sacrifice. And we tend to not like sacrifice because we tend to like what's comfortable. What even Jesus said, if a man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Ongoing unity takes ongoing sacrifice, and unity inside the walls is what strengthens us for the work outside the walls. You see, the gospel of Jesus... And this is, this is where unity really starts to, to be able to happen. This is where it really starts to, this is what it grows from. The gospel of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the fact that while I was condemned, I am now unconditionally loved. The gospel of Jesus will compel our thoughts. It will compel our decisions. It will compel our actions and our words to be filtered through the question, what is the greatest act of love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ? Not what will be easiest for me? Because of everything that Christ has done for me, because he has loved me, because he has forgiven me in a radical and extravagant way, in a way that could not be matched, because of that, I'm compelled. The gospel compels me to do everything with this question as a filter. What is the greatest act of love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what Nehemiah is doing. He is sacrificing because it's what's best for his brothers and sisters. You see, the gospel unites all of us. It unites the old, it unites the young, it unites the criminals, it unites the murderers, it unites enemies. We are all united under the banner of the gospel. The cross of Jesus is the strongest bond any true believers have. The cross of Jesus is stronger than any blood relationships. It's stronger than our lifelong friends. It's stronger than those who share our race. It's stronger than those who share our economic situation. It's stronger than those with the same education, lifestyle, and preferences. Stronger than anything is the gospel of Jesus. We could be worlds apart. It's just about every way. But the gospel of Jesus can bring us together. It is so strong and it is so powerful. It can unite even the most different people. The cross of Jesus is the greatest unifying factor for every believer. And it's really the unity that takes place inside our walls that allow us to have the right prescription lenses to see the hurt and the oppression and the injustice outside of our walls. It's the foundation, the unity inside the wall strengthens for the work outside the, wall, outside the wall. So the question is, what are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to give up so that unity can take place? See, truth be told, when we consider how much Christ has given us, we're not really giving up anything. When I consider how much God loves me, and that truth just smacks me in the heart, man, it makes it so easy to love. It makes it so easy to give up, to sacrifice. Why? 
because I'm so full of his love. The gospel is what allows our unity to take place. The gospel is what allows us to ask the question, what is the greatest act of love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ? We're asking God to do an incredible building work. Next week, like Ben said, double services. Easter, arguably the greatest holiday in the life of a Christian. Our faith hinges on the resurrection. And next week, we get to celebrate it. Next week, we're going to double services. Today, we're closing a chapter in the history of Ambassador. Goodbye, 1030 service. Peace out. Double services, here we come. It's a brand new and exciting chapter. But let's not forget that the unity inside the walls is what strengthens us for the unity outside the walls. And our unity is possible because of Jesus Christ. So there will be things that, man, that kind of bothered me. But he's my brother. I'm unconditionally loved by God, so I can unconditionally love him. The unity is what strengthens us for the work. Let's be a people who are willing to sacrifice for unity. God builds through sacrificial unity. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.